It's rare that one would move to another country purely because of how it looked in a film. But our guest did just that, and it only took the perfect job opportunity to tempt him to return to the UK. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we're inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by everyone in this industry. Yes, Jack Sati, senior Tanqueray and world-class ambassador Tiaggio, fell in love with New Zealand after seeing the Lord of the Rings movies. He bought a one-way ticket to Auckland and the rest is history. After wangling his first bar job there, his career took off and continued to rise, winning Australia's Bartender of the Year at the Diageo Reserve World Class Australian Finals in 2015. You'll have to hear how he won that and what he did after in today's episode. Before we begin, you can find links on how to donate to some of your favorite bars or have cocktails delivered right to your door on the homepage of my website, alushlifemanual.com. Now, on to Jack. Yeah, um, I was born where I live today, so I've kind of come home, uh, which is in Enfield in North London. Um, a, A very kind of, you know, standard london living like suburban london living in north london there's a big greek community so surrounded by lots of family um went to school here went off to i I always say i got shipped off to boarding school but um, that makes that makes it sound like i didn't enjoy it i absolutely loved it um so i went to a school called halebury in hartford heath which is a really beautiful school it's hundreds of years old and like feels feels very posh um and it, and it certainly was but that was a really lovely education and you know it's like having a sleepover with your mates every single night of the week which is fun um and then i went to university in leeds where i started my hospitality career wait wait um, hold on hold on let's go back to your family yeah. so they were they were greek and was this a typical greek family lots of food and yelling and screaming and fun yeah, it was always like a a, um, a battle between my mum and my dad in terms of um, what the family would be like. My mum is very typically British, and so she grew up um, in, you know, like a very kind of classic English upbringing, um, which is like, you know, very different to, to, to Greek. And then obviously my dad is is Greek. And, and so uh, growing up, I lived with my grandmother as well, my yaya. And so it was always this wonderful balance of, you know, my mother's British sensibilities um, and then, you know, the crazy Greek side of the family as well. So it was actually a really nice balance. Um, Yeah, my dad is is not the best Greek uh, in terms of like the true, my big fat Greek wedding um, stereotype. But he does, for me, he kind of encompasses all, all the right things that you really need um, if you're going to be a proud Greek, which is um, a love of food, um, cooking over charcoal, which she did <laughs> every every weekend, no matter what what the weather was like, um, and and hospitality, and you know just being that uh, over forbearing, loving, you know, you know, no matter what you do, you just get like doted upon, and you know, I think I I've definitely picked that up. I'm very, what does my wife call me? Um, oh, I can't remember what she says. Oh, it'll come back to me. But yeah, yeah, I'm very, very kind of all up in people's faces when it comes to oh, uh, smothering. <laughs> I'm very smothering. 
And, you know, with my kids, um, sorry, my kid and second one on the way and my wife, I'm all up in their face. And I think the same thing applies to my approach in hospitality, you know, just being thorough and making sure that, you know, you've covered every base as part of a guest journey. Um, but I guess that's the conversation we'll kind of get on to. Yeah. Now, you said that you started your hospitality career when you went off to university. Mm. Um, how did you know that would be the career for you? Or was it just something you thought you would try? Yeah, I mean, I was, um, I felt at school, I was bright, you know, being reinforced by my, my mummy telling me how clever I was. Um, <laughs> so I always, I always wanted to do um, something uh, and contribute to society. It was really interesting, actually. I wanted to um, go into um, psychology and uh, I didn't get the appropriate grades to, to go to university to do the degree I wanted, which was in psychology. And so um, in the UK, we have clearing day, which is if you didn't get the grades, you, you get the um, the dregs list, the back <laughs> of the paper of what courses are left. Um, and you you literally in the course of 24 hours apply to whatever you think you can get into. And um, my mum was a, a wedding planner. Um, she's been a wedding planner for the last 25 years. So I just thought, you know, events, and my auntie does events as well. So I thought, let's do an events uh, degree because all I wanted to do was fly the nest and go to university. I'd already been at boarding school, so I kind of definitely didn't want to be based back home. Um, Did you ever think of taking the year out and, you know, trying again? Yeah, but um, I just wanted to crack on. And um, I really didn't want to, um, I wanted to travel eventually, but I just didn't want to have to have a gap year and, and wait. I just wanted to get busy mm. and make money. Um, so, yeah, I went to Leeds um, and got into this events management degree, which I actually really enjoyed. It was a bit of a laugh, but also there was a lot of business um, and modules on entrepreneurialism. And I actually got a lot more out of it than I anticipated. But pretty much as soon as I landed in Leeds, I got a job in my first week because um, that's just what I wanted to do. I wanted to work um, and experience life. Uh, and I had already I had already worked a little bit throughout my teenage years for my father, who had a, um, a menswear suit shop. Um, so I kind of done some retail stuff. And then as soon as I got to Leeds, I thought, right, um, I, I just loved, you know, the partying lifestyle. Um, and I was really good with people. So uh, I kind of fell into uh, running a club night, a student night. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, it seemed like a really good business model for me because I really wasn't down for an hourly rate, but I would get 50p for every name I got on a guest list for, for a club night. So it involved just me being social. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, and it was really great. You know, I was the guy at the front door of nightclubs wearing, you know, a long trench coat in winter, oh smoking God. a cigarette and having a clipboard. And I felt like the man about town. I was only 19. But um, didn't you think, didn't you think, I've just got to invite every single person. I know they all have to come or I'm going to make no money. Yeah, everyone. I got my own business cards made up. I treated it like my own business. I love you. Um, every single person I met, I just said, you know, if you want to get into any club, just let me know. And I, I definitely wasn't that guy. I didn't have connections at any club, but as soon as someone said they wanted to go somewhere, I would just make it happen. What um, was your title on your business cards? Oh, God, what was it? I can't even remember. I should oh dig God, one up. I can't, <laughs> I can't even remember. Um, 
<laughs> you know, it, it was really, really fun. And then I got then I got fired um, by my my boss because I was being maybe a bit too entrepreneurial. I kind of saw an opportunity. I thought, why why am I putting in all the hard work when there's the first year students? So this was in my second year um, who want to work. And I said, listen, guys. Um, you send me names to go on the guest list, and you can get twenty five p for every person you get in. So oh my I was, God, you were you were subcontracting. It was great, right? It makes sense. <laughs> and for me, it was a win win for my uh, for my boss at the time because you know he was getting more more people in. I'm sure he was taking four pounds fifty of everyone who got in the club anyway. So I, I got let go because I, I was a little bit too entrepreneurial, shall we say? And um, <laughs> I was gonna just continue doing it on my own. Um, but I think it was literally three days later after getting the sack, but one of the bar owners of one of the places I, I was kind of standing on the door said, you know, where were you this weekend? I said, oh, I got the sack. Said, oh, why don't you come down into the bar um, and work behind the bar? I said, I haven't got an absolute clue. And he said, and I was quite young and um, healthy looking. And, he, and I, um, the bar was a gay bar. Um, and he said, listen, mate, no one cares about what your drinks taste like. You've got a beautiful smile and you make people happy. So come and get behind the bar. And I said, oh, God, uh, OK, let's give it a go. And immediately I just fell in love with it because, you know, it was just such a different lifestyle. Instead of being stuck out on the front door, freezing your ass off, um, you were behind the bar. It was busy and sweaty and you know, you built this camaraderie up with the bartenders and none of you knew what you were doing, but there was one kind of old dog behind the bar who would teach us how to make strawberry daiquiris and stuff like that. And just immediately it clicked. Uh, and mm -hmm. I knew at the age of, um, how old was I then? 20, 20 years old, that I wanted to make it a career. And so I finished my degree because I would have been um, killed by my parents. And, I, and I, I finished well, and it was it was good, and I learned a lot. Um, but whilst I was in Leeds, I then finished up in the kind of um, late night bar nightclub scene, and wanted to kind of seek, uh, I guess, like a more um, sp specific, I guess, a more tailored training approach. So I went to work for Gaucho Group. Um, uh -huh. So they've, I think, I'm, I'm not sure they've gone undergone a bit of an upheaval at the moment. And they've gone um, a whole new remodel and restructure, uh, and and they're still killing it. But back in the day, the Goucher, Goucher were known for their training programs. They had a, a an academy every single month where they sent bartenders back to school before you even set foot um, in service. You had to do a week's intensive course in a classroom every single day, and then they had um, continuous training. Um, and uh, monitoring and assessments. And that was just the environment I really wanted to be in because I just wanted to know how to do things properly. Was Whereas, it still you know, in, was it, sorry, was it still in Leeds or did you come back to London? No, it was still in Leeds. So I helped oh. open open a new, the, the new venue there. And then I worked for Gaucho for the next four years until I finished my degree. And then, um, and that was a year after as well. Uh, and I'd gone back down to London. Um, to work in the down there. What kind of things were you making there? Uh, was it a bit, obviously, a bit more refined than strawberry jackeries? I mean, was it yeah. all the classics? Yeah, that I mean, kind the, best, of thing? the best thing about it was it was my first foray in, into food and, and and decent food. You know, there were 
Gaucho have got some amazing produce. They ship in their steak from um, from Argentina, and they have got incredible chefs to work with them. And then they had this uh, the director of bars at the time, a guy by the name of Lance Perkins, who now well he just finished up as I think maybe the director of bars for um, the Edition Hotels and, and the Punch Room. Uh, and so I haven't actually spoken to him since I've been back in the country, so it's been over a decade. But, you know, I always used to look up to him because he was this, uh, it's the first time I saw a bartender uh, as a career in, in real life, you know. This guy was, um, you know, in his 30s and he'd been doing it for so long and he just dripped knowledge out of every pore. You just couldn't teach it w- without experience. And I just loved it and I, I just wanted to be him in terms of you know what he's done with his career and so that that was really good for me and Mm. the drinks um very south american inspired um lots and lots of kind of fresh ingredients uh the bloody mary was one of the best selling drinks um yeah it it, it was a really great starting point for a bartender and i really couldn't couldn't recommend it enough do you get to work with the chefs or the the cooks as well were you learning that kind of thing uh while you were learning the drinks yeah flavor flavor and combining flavors yeah so i mean you start off um in that environment you're not allowed to work on the bar unless you know everything about the the food um just because they want you to be able to pull out a menu and explain every single element of a dish uh to a guest as a bartender and so um cross training wise that was really, really strong. And then I just found myself gravitating towards the kitchen all the time. And I had a really good relationship with every chef I worked with in every restaurant, mainly because um, I worked out um, a very simple rule I've taken with me my whole career is that, you know, keep the chef happy and um, they'll share their knowledge with you. But more importantly, they'll, they'll feed you all of the great little off cuts of steak. <laughs> So um, I would, you know, if there was ever a downtime um, in the bar, I would walk into the kitchen and just start um, washing dishes if there was like a little pile up and the kitchen porter wasn't around. And, you know, I wasn't asked to do it. But after a little while, the, the chef, you know, really starts to think, oh, this guy's really got a lot of um, initiative. Uh, nice, nice of him to help. And then suddenly you can strike, strike up a conversation whilst, whilst you're both working just say chef um you know what's that you're doing there and you just pick things up and i think you know that's the one bit of advice i give to young bartenders you know chefs can often be seen as these quite um scary people um because you know they're very can they can be quite introverted compared to front of house extroverted people um and i've definitely met a lot of chefs that intimidate me but <laughs> it turns out they're really easy to um to, to get to know they just want to see you graft um because that's the kind of you know person they are and i guess show an interest in what they're doing as well yeah exactly yeah mm-hmm. now were you get gaucho were you getting what you wanted out of this i mean i know you continued in your career doing it but were you thinking yeah yeah yeah, this is it this is it yeah. i picked the right um, thing yeah no definitely and um i i constantly got loads of positive reinforcement um when I was leaving university and moving down to London, there was a small um, little battle between a few. They have, a, I think, seven sites in London, and they're all arguing over which one was going to get me, which was really great and reinforcing. <laughs> and I, I think I ended up at Gaucho Broadgate, um, which is a beautiful site in like a big glass box. 
And that was really cool. And that's when I met um, Galin um, Kirev, who now is the bar manager of Bagatelle. Um, and he's an amazing guy. And that was the first time I've met someone who even explained to me what molecular gastronomy was. I just ha hadn't had a clue. Um, I was kind of look, I was just really into classic cocktails and the history. And suddenly, you know, he showed me um, the El Bully cookbook and brought in an ISI cream whipper into work. And I was like, what the hell is that? Um, and then suddenly, you know, all within the space of six months, I think, um, I got super into that and I, I just, my, my eyes just kind of went outwards, um, out of London thinking this is such a competitive industry um, and there's so much world to see. I didn't want to take a gap year because I didn't want to waste time traveling, but suddenly I can travel and work with this skill that I've now acquired. So um, I think I was only back in London for maybe like eight, nine months and uh and uh, I just thought, let's go somewhere. Um, and I don't know why, but I decided to go as far away as humanly possible, which was New Zealand, um, literally the other end of the planet from, from, from London. Probably that because it was massive. I was going to say, that must have killed your Greek family. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, my oh, God, you're going as far as you could. It's not like yeah, it's Italy. Uh, or Yeah. I mean, my dad is... Um, my dad's a dad and he you know he missed me but also you know he definitely wanted to encourage me to do what i wanted it was my mum who really struggled um and you know I, I was gone eight years and uh you know every every week she would call me saying when are you coming home uh -huh. um but yeah new now what well why did you pick new zealand do you think i was a, I was a massive nerd and um i love lord of the rings i hey, there's there's nothing nerdy about that. Yeah, and yeah, I I read the book when I was um when I was eleven, and it was for some reason I I already always struggled with reading mainly because I I probably hadn't discovered fantasy, um, and I picked up Lord of the Rings and thought, holy hell, this looks like a really intimidating book as it is, but with the trilogy before the movies came out, and um. I just read it cover to cover and I just really shocked myself. And because I was, I was so scared of books, but I consumed it, I reread it again. Uh, and I think I read it about five times in a row. And then I finally realized I could read other things and, and I discovered a whole world of the, the fantasy genre. And then the movies came out. I watched them probably about 20 times uh, and thought, wow, you know, I think one thing Peter Jackson did so well was in just embody everything on those pages and New Zealand was the best place. And I had, you know, all the extended cuts and behind the scenes. And I was just looking at this place called New Zealand and I thought, shit, I've got, I've got to go. I have to go. And so that was, it was really simple as that. And I really had no idea what the bar scene was like. Didn't do any research. But just thought, did you, did you just pick Auckland or Wellington? Did, where did uh, you go? I picked Auckland because that's where you can fly into from London. I mean, you can fly into Christchurch, but um, uh, I think I asked one person who had been there, you know, Auckland or Christchurch. I didn't even know Wellington was a place, and they <laughs> said Auckland. Um, and uh, I think within about within about seven days, I'd spent my savings on a on a ticket, a one way ticket, which is funny because of your last podcast. Um, uh, I got. I got a visa approved. It was really easy. Um, 
yeah and i went there and it was it was, it was crazy my mum was in bits really really upset but you know really excited for me and um when i got on the plane um i sat next to this lovely kiwi lady for the whole duration of the second leg so i can't remember maybe like 12 hours or something and um she was really lovely um and she hadn't been home to new zealand for about 20 years but she was just singing its praises how much i was going to love it and she said oh you're going to find a nice Kiwi girl and you're going to settle down. You're never going to go back to England. And I said, oh, yeah, right. You know, I'm thinking I was going to go there and, you know, sow my oats and be a young man and have fun in bars. Um, and, you know, how right she was. But that's, that's, uh. <laughs> but we're talking to you when you're in London or you're in England. So we're okay. Yeah. But yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> uh, so did you know anyone going there or any bars? Had you done any research? Um no, after I bought my ticket, um, I googled top bars in um, in Auckland, and I really had no one to corroborate if they were good or not. Um, and I think on the the number one bar on the list was Sweet Bar, which um, uh, Chanel Lecory used to work at. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure if you know her, and um, Tim Etherington Judge from Healthy Hospital used to work at. Um, James Goggin. Yeah, yeah. Um, Barney toys and really cool, cool people that, you know, were on this pedestal. So I thought, you know, let's go to Sweet Bar. Um, so I turned up my first night. I went to the hostel, had a shower, put on a suit and already had some CVs printed out with the telephone number blank. So I got a SIM card, wrote that in. And literally in the first night, I just had nothing else to do. I didn't know anyone. Um, and I just went to Sweet Bar and I sat there and I said, sorry, and no jobs um here's a drink they were lovely but also you know in hindsight you know now i've run bars it must have been so so hilarious and naive you know this backpacker just turning up and hoping for the best um, like going going into the car lot and sitting there and going can i get the, can i have a chop please yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> um and so i was kind of yeah i was out on my own uh and then i i went i just walked into i thought you know this isn't I haven't got time into me messing around applying for jobs. So I just walked into um, a bar that was, I think, number four on the list, and it was called 1885, and it was um, a really busy three-story nightclub. But they had, like, little – they had about five different bars within it, and I thought, God, they must go through staff. Um, I can get a job here. So I walked in, and I said, "Um, hey, um, is the manager on duty? Uh, and so the manager came in and I said, hey, um, so I was already dressed in a um, black shirt, black pants and black suit jacket. So possible blacks. And I said, hey, I've got a trial shift here tonight. They said, oh, um, who, who, so I didn't, who organized it? And I said, oh, it was the um, the guy uh, on the day shift for me to come back. And he was like, James? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah James. Oh, my said, God. Okay, cool. Um, pop the stuff downstairs and, and jump behind the bar. And um, they got rammed, and I got a job that night. Um, and I told I was friends with the boss later and down the line. I said, you know that no one gave me a trial shift, right? I just kind of turned up, um, which was cool. And within six months, I was the assistant venue manager there. I, um, and obviously, obviously, James didn't tell on you, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely not. I, to be fair, they went through so, so many staff. He, you know, he probably had no idea whether it whether he saw me or not um and it so was really what, cool. what was the difference that you found uh working there as opposed to working in london 
are. I mean, Kiwi and Aussie hospitality, I, I feel like I can lump them together, is quite unique in just the, the style. Um, even though a lot of the venues are, you know, built by backpackers, um, you know, and quite international bar teams, they're still um, adopting that kind of laid back culture of, of Australia and New Zealanders. The, the style is very informal, but still um, hits all the points. So you can have a fine experience, uh, by fine, I mean like, you know, e excellent, um, covering every kind of cycle of service and making sure the guest has a wonderful, wonderful experience. But you still kind of start it by saying good day, mate, and um, being really relaxed and shaking everyone's hand and, you know, you know knowing people by first name. And it, it's just really, really chilled out. Uh, and I think, I, you know, that's where I really, really kind of thought, yeah, this is this is my style. This is how I want to be um, in this world because I'd worked, you know, in you know, these fancy restaurants and, you know, they were, they were really nice but also really proper, you know, in London, all these business lunches and you've got to be careful what you say, whereas you, you just have such a laugh um, and it was a really wonderful experience. Did you find that you were, like, refining your craft while you were in this in 1885? Yeah, definitely. It was it was um it was kind of um a bit of both, you know, upstairs in the bar. That was high volume and you know that was fun and that taught me a really valuable skill that I hadn't honed, which was like how to pump out drinks as fast as possible. Um but luckily there was a, a basement bar downstairs called the basement and it was a members bar. Um and it was still the Auckland crowd who were young and fun, so it wasn't a stuffy members bar. It was for, you know, young money um you know lots of lots of daddy's money and you know young advertising execs with no dependents and so um that's where we had cocktails and um i worked underneath a guy called alan raythorn um who now owns a bar in melbourne and i learned a lot from him he kind of pushed me into competing into competitions um and we had no cocktail menu down there so everything was done oh. very much in like a milk and honey style of like um you know Alamanu, find out what the kind of guest wants, and and so we just had a back bar full of loads of different modifiers and loads of fresh fruit everywhere, and we just had to come up with stuff on the fly, which was really really fun um, way of developing my palate, especially with all the kiwi produce because it's so tasty. And you said that he introduced you to competitions. Did you know that competitions were going on? Had you wanted to to be in one? Did you had you wanted to compete? Yeah, I was aware of them. Um, I was vaguely aware of them. We had done some internal competitions at Gaucho, which were fun, but I'd never dared kind of put myself out there and, and stood up on a public stage. And, you know, so, um, yeah, he, he just said, you know, you're good at this. Why don't you enter this competition? I said, you know, okay. And I think the first one was uh, Appleton Estate. Um, was, and the trip was... Uh, well, the, the winner won a trip to Jamaica. Um, and I came last, but I, in, the, I was in the final, so the last out of eight. Um, but in that final, I was working with some, um, I was competing against some incredible people who I hugely respect nowadays. Um, you've got Tom Egerton, um, who's over in Singapore. I think he's in Singapore. No, he's in Hong Kong now. Um, he works for Proof & Co., um, James Goggin, I competed against him, which is hilarious, is now we're both here. Um, 
and Jason Clark, who works with me at Diageo now as a Talisker ambassador. And who I know very well and has been on the show a long time, a while ago. Yes, he was a very well-seasoned competition bartender when I entered my first one. And he did a great rum drink with like a cooked banana cream that was so delicious and just filled the room. So, Did you, so what, was it something that you thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I really like this. Even though I came in last out of eight, you know, I really love this. I'm going to try again. Yeah, I mean, I just, as soon as you do it, you get you get the buzz and you get the, 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 the thrill of adrenaline. It's something I haven't felt, hadn't felt since I was at school and I was in a, a high school band. Um, and I can I can't play any instruments, and I'm not musical, but I really wanted to do it. So I was I just said I can be the front man, and I would do songs by bands that don't require much of a singing voice, like the Arctic Monkeys and stuff. Um, oh my god, I love it! It was so good. <laughs> we, we were called what were we called? I can't remember the name of the band. The Cardiacs, I think. But then we realised that was a real band, and um, let's change our name. Anyway. We, we <laughs> Um, so I love I love I love performing and I think this is I finally realized I could combine that and drinks and immediately afterwards I entered Forty Duty Below Cocktail World Cup. Um because that was like, you know, the best competition in the world at the time. You know, this was Diageo World Class was only in its first or second year. It wasn't a global phenomenon yet. Um and Forty Duty Below Cocktail World Cup was the one to win, right? And they had the country Especially in New Zealand. Yeah, because exactly. Right, because it's from New Zealand. Um, so I made it to the final of that as well, which I was really proud of. Um, and I was told I would have, I would have won. I mean, by winning, that's there's three winners because you create a team. Um, but I was disqualified um, because oh. I may have. Um, I was doing a, a snap infusion in an ISI canister with some cacao nibs into some vodka or something, kind of halloumi on stage. And then as I was releasing the pressure, I, I may have um, inhaled some of the gas as a joke because of my years of working in nightclubs, which is, you know, it's just laughing gas. It's completely fine, but also not a good look for a brand. You know, and as a young coffee bartender, I admit that now. Uh, but it was pretty <laughs> funny. Um, it certainly made me um, notorious in New Zealand, in, in the bartending community. Um, so it kind of helped me in my career, taught me what definitely what not to do, um, and um, told me not to be such an idiot as well when representing the brand. <laughs> now, I know you made the jump to Australia. Yeah. Uh, so how did you, why did you decide to leave your dear old New Zealand for that? that was, um, Alan, leave the Alan, Yeah, <laughs> Alan, my mentor at the time, uh, we were two peas in a pod and, you know, he was very much like, you know, put his arm over me and be like, look, kid, you know, we're both really good at this, but like New Zealand's small time. You know, let's go take on the big smoke over in Melbourne, you know, because it's like the cocktail capital of the Southern Hemisphere. Um, I'm sure people in Buenos Aires would argue with that, but it's one of them. It's very, it, it's very great, the cocktail scene over there. On that and, side um, of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so we decided to, to go as a team. Both he and I um, went over there. Um, we had we had some friends already just th through the industry and we both said, right, we're going to go and work in either the Black Pearl or Odevee, Melbourne. And uh, we were just so cocky and we said, you know, these are the bars we're going to work in. Um, and we got there and um, the Black Pearl definitely wasn't hiring because they had the best <laughs> half retention of any bar in history. And um, 
Odeby only had space for one, and it was Alan's friend who kind of hooked us up. So Alan got in there, uh, and I waited um, diligently whilst doing some part-time shifts elsewhere for something to happen. And I just was really keen, you know. I just how I've kind of done my whole career, I've kind of forced my way in. So I learned their entire specs back to front. I just told that you know Alan just shared all that information with me. Um, and one night, it was like a crazy thing happened where one of the waiters. Wait, wait, wait. Let let me guess. You said you had a guest shift. I mean, you <laughs> right? Or you you were supposed to do a trial shift. Sorry, a trial <laughs> shift because James had said right. No, the bar was way too <laughs> to get away with that. And uh, the, owner, the owner Greg worked um worked at the bar. So um, no, the one of the waiters had a punch up with the head chef. Uh, I'm not sure what happened. Very juicy gossip. Um, but you know, he stormed out, uh, and it was a really busy service. I think the chef had left as well, so someone jumped in to make charcuterie and cheese plates. So there were two staff members down, and I was um yes. sitting at the bar waiting for my moment. And I was just like, guys, you know, if you need a hand, I can, I can jump on the floor. And so I did that and um, served all night. Um, the Odeby Melbourne for me was like the epitome of court. I used to watch their cocktail videos as a bartender in London. Um, that was when YouTube cocktail videos were really big, long before Facebook and, and um, Instagram were on the go. And I was just obsessed with these videos. They're so cool. Um, you know, all the bartenders were like dressed up to the nines and they had liquid nitrogen martinis, um, you know, and the opening team of the original Eau original in Sydney were like, infamous. So had to work there and um, got the shift, got a job that night which was great. And that's where I met Greg Sanderson, the owner of Oda V and now the Speakeasy Group. And um, that was kind of my career sorted in, in Melbourne from there, then on in. I was there for five or six years. And and again, learning more, I'm sure. But how did you feel about that time there? What do you think you got out of it the most while you were there? Uh, I mean, so during my time with the Speakeasy Group, I kind of went from, you know, a waiter um, to a partner and I was part owner at, for their second venue, Boilermaker House. So, um, you know, I, I, they trusted me with Eau de Vie, which was the busiest cocktail bar I've ever been to. And, you know, when I say cocktails, I mean like only cocktails. We sold 95% of ourselves were cocktails. Um, Sven, the other owner, he um, famously... Um, take out beers if they were selling too well um, and take out wines if they were selling too well because he wanted it to be predominantly cocktails. And it got to that cult status where, you know, on the past there'd be, you know, 30 drinks all with all the, it was a very kind of like um, night jar style, you know, with all the little kind of fussy garnishes and, you know, cloches with smoke under. And it was the most cumbersome thing to put on a tray and take over to the table and all the tables were really low so you had to squat down um and i just fell in love with it so i learned um how to deal under huge amounts of pressure different levels of pressure because of the the money people were spending on the drinks um the quality of the finished product like you know we had someone working the past like a chef would mm -hmm. i i'd never had that before you know and by the end of it you know i was working the past I wasn't fast enough to work behind the pass on dispense. Um, I used to get a lot of nicking taken out of me by, by my colleagues uh, um, for not not being on dispense. I could do the quiet nights, but they put me on 
either on the floor, on the pass, or on the vacation station, which is the bar where you <laughs> chat, the station where you chat up everyone who's sitting at the bar. So I was like the entertainment, which was great. And that bar team, like I still fantasize about it today. It was um, me, um, Todd Finley, who um, recently just worked at Scout, um, Orlando Matzo, um, who was our world-class bartender of the year a couple of years mm. ago, um, and a whole heap of other legends. So it was just, it just hummed. And we used to have, we used to have competitions for how many, because we always had a queue that was about 100 meters long um, on the weekends. So we really how much money we made was down to how fast we could make drinks and how quickly we could turn tables. So in the end, I was the um, general manager, so I would never work on the bar and I would ultimately just run the door. Um, and we used to have competitions between me and one other guy who could get more bums on seats. And it must have been awful for the customers because we were cramming people in there, uh, you know, splitting up tables and putting, you know, three different groups on one table. But in the end, it created this like buzzing atmosphere. You had, you know, like speakeasy swing music going, liquid nitrogen martinis and bartenders shouting at the floor staff. It was the coolest environment I've ever worked in. And I don't think something I can, I've ever seen replicated before. Um, so yeah, it was, it was bloody cool. Were you competing as well during that time? Yeah, yeah. Um, when I got to Melbourne, I kind of really kind of got into things. And the first major competition I did well in was bowls around the world. Um, so that that was quite cool. I remember being inspired by Jason Clark, who also rep he represented New Zealand um, the year before me. And then because it was always um, Australasia, sorry, um, as as a region. So the year after, I managed to get in um, winning Australasia, which is massive for me and that was my first kind of international trip as a prize um went over to the netherlands and competed in the global final there um and i didn't win um kate Gowen won and she did an amazing job but it was still just such a great experience and of course i got a free trip home because if i was going i was to gonna say i i hope you saw your mom and dad then yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah my dad and my brother actually flew over to to um the netherlands to watch me compete and that was when my dad kind of realized, you know, this is a career and he's not just pissing about over in Australia having fun, um, which is a really lovely, lovely thing for me because my dad is a, a really great businessman um, and has always wanted me to work in the family business, which is property. And, you know, I just didn't, it just wasn't for me. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was really cool of him to come over and support me that way. And I think, you know, from then on, he kind of backed off and, 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 let, me, and let me get on with it. Uh, and as soon as I had that trip under my belt, I was so hungry um, to do it again. And so I entered uh, all the big ones, Bacardi Legacy, um, World Class, and I always did like okay. Um, but it was a year, two years, yeah, 2013 was Bowls, and in 2015 I gave World Class another crack. And it was only my second time around, and, uh, and I won it in Australia, and I really couldn't believe that was now, possible. What do you think the difference between your first time trying and your second time winning was? Uh, mistakes. The first time I tried, I actually didn't even get to the presentation stage, which was the bit I was good at. Um, it taught me a really valuable lesson. I, I, I just didn't follow the marking criteria. It's so simple, right? You see a brief 
and you get all excited and you come up with a drink and you send in your recipe and you think, this is amazing. I'm going to smash this. But of course, on the second page of the brief is the bit you don't read, which is oh, the tiny little terms and conditions they're writing. Why would, you bother, why would you bother reading that? It's a creative process. You're just getting a drink in. Um, and I just made a really simple mistake. I think I put like the wrong amount of liquid, like a spirit into the drink. And so therefore it was determined um, invalid. And, and I didn't make it through. And it was just such an easy, dumb mistake. Mm-hmm. It was something I had to make because after that, I became so hyper aware of the terms and conditions and I think that gave me an edge because I would look through everything, highlight them all, and then pull out specific things that they're looking for um, that weren't in the brief. Um, you know, with, you know, you could actually see, depending on how many bullet points, um, you know, the weighting of, of marking, you can see, okay, well, they've put 12 bullet points for, for flavor. And so... Um, you just divide the flavor part of the scoring by 12 and you can, you know, as long as you hit every point. Um, and so, yeah, I think just be, being hyper analytical of competitions was the way to go. I think I already had a knack for presenting, so I wasn't worried about that. But um, yeah, I think it's funny though, because the advice I give to bartenders now is so different because I look at the drinks that bartenders are submitting for world-class and it's only, five years later and i already feel out of my depth it's amazing how (laughs) rapidly the industry is moving and you know as soon as i won world class um i traveled around the world um as part of my prize which was uh, around the world in in 80 bars um which was incredible but then after that i just um opened up boilermaker house as part owner and dived into spreadsheets um and service and had zero time for for cocktails and actually after winning world-class australia and then competing globally um i i entered again three years on the trot and i didn't didn't do as good mm-hmm. but I, I have no regrets about that because a lot of bartenders think okay i've won a competition um i want to i don't want to i don't want to kind of jeopardize my reputation by do, not yeah. doing it next time around but I, I i disagree i think you know you don't see brazil kind of saying i'm not gonna compete in the world cup every time you know just because we don't want to always be the best so i i think it's great great for creativity um just to keep pushing yourself and cocktail competitions for me are just a way to get a highly specific brief and to start you know, clicking your brain into different ways of working and kind of pushing the creative process when you don't have menus to write or, you know, and most bartenders don't get the privilege of writing their venues mm-hmm. menus because that's up to, you know, uh, someone in management. Now, did you want to own your own bar? Um, was that something that you had hoped? You know, when you yeah. came back, did you think, I want yeah. to own one? Yeah, it was a massive ambition of mine because um, it is of every bartender's when you start falling in love with it, you know, the magic of having complete control. Um, and owning and operating Boilermaker House was was so fun and um, it scared me a lot. I mean, I was, a, I was a minority partner, but, you know, it was enough to keep me interested. Um, and it was just, it was so much work and we made it work and it was highly profitable. Uh, and I love the culture of building a team and a family. 
But I tell you what, it is hard, hard work. It is so exhausting. And, you know, I've my hair was thinning. I definitely <laughs> aged 20 years in, uh, in the five years I was at Boilermaker. Um, and ultimately, um, the only reason why, why I left, I was ready to stay in the speakeasy group and keep opening venues with, with my two business partners because uh, I love them and I love the speakeasy group and what they stood for. But um, ultimately, I wanted to have babies and a family, and uh, we had to, we literally had a list of pros and cons for um, doing it in Australia and continuing with the career path that I was on, um, or doing it back in London where both of our families were and all that support was. And um, it, it was nearly in favor of Melbourne, but it was just maybe one point tipped over to London. And by this point, it had been three years since I won world class and Diageo had been knocking on the door for three years to come and work for them. Um, and I said, no, 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 I want to be a bar owner. I want to do this. I want to do that. And then as soon as there is a bun in the oven, you know, <laughs> thinking, well, it's quite tough. The hours are unsociable. Uh, the money is tough. Um, there's no benefits. There's little security. Um, and so I thought, you know what, I'm going to take Diageo up on their offer. Um, and and it was an amazing job I, I came into. Um, in Diageo, you know, you've got the brand ambassadors and they, they, they didn't really have um, a brand ambassador manager um, role available because um, Dan Dove had filled it for so long. And it's mm. just like the perfect storm of Dan starting up his own consultancy and me having a relationship with him. Um, and so it was coming in that extra level up at Diageo that kind of gave me thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a people manager. And that's something I really, really enjoy. Um, I've got a deep, deep passion for it since operating my own bar and building a team and a culture. And so it's not just going to be, you know, doing gin trainings every single day. Um, and then on top of that, you know, they, there was the whole carrot of running the world-class program in, in Great Britain. So I felt like I was coming home a completely different person to the, to, to the boy who left. Um, and so, yeah, it was an easy decision to make. Uh, and and I had no idea how long I'd be at the Azure for. At the time, I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna give it two years, which is really naive of me, two, two years ago. <laughs> in my mind, I still desperately wanted to own another bar, even though it was hard. I thought, you know, I'm going to have a baby. I'll, I'll get that sweet, sweet um, corporate security for the start. And then, you know, I've got some money from when I left Boilermaker and I opened a bar in London. And the longer I've been uh, working in the Diageo, I'm not going to lie, you know, I started off, um, it was really intimidating because it's my first foray into corporate life. And even though I was enjoying it, I, I, it was really hard for me to adjust. And so the whole time I was thinking, you know, yeah, I'm still on the lookout for bars and business partners. And I was talking to a lot of people. Uh, and those conversations have ceased completely because two years in, I finally found my feet and I'm really, really enjoying it. And suddenly, you know, I've got a team that I've hired the majority of them. Um, and the world-class program is growing and it's really mine. And I've changed it and put my experience from the competition into the TV program. And um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm like a, a really significant part of it instead instead of this outsider who who's pretending to be corporate. 
I'm finally in. I, I feel like I've adapted. And um, But there's one thing that you haven't said that I know you do, um, and that is your relationship with Tanqueray. When did, yeah. that, when did that start? So that was from the beginning, and it was a really intimidating job role. So they were hiring a senior Tanqueray brand ambassador. Um, so that's um, a Diageo way of putting it, um, putting the fact that you're doing three jobs in one, which... Um, you know, when I started, I think um, someone said to me, oh, you're the sucker who who, who, who accepted that job role, which I thought was a compliment. Um, and you know what? I, I thought, you know, it was challenging. I was running world class. I was a people manager of a team of 10 and, and I was a full-time tanker ambassador. And, you know, it was really, really hard. But I guess um, I was trying to do all three jobs as three independent people would do do them. Um, and I just hadn't had the experience. Um, sorry, Diageo people, if you're listening. At the time, I just hadn't had the experience of, of, of juggling all those three things. And I think in hindsight now, I've hit my stride. It doesn't require juggling. You just need to merge the roles in such a way that they all complement one another. And... Um, you know, just before um, all this business happened with COVID-19, we actually just agreed as a business to um, hire a Tanqueray ambassador and for me to step down that part because, because since I've started, we've had four new brand ambassadors start. And so I'm going to focus a lot more on people management um, and running a world-class program. But uh, now you you said that one of the reasons to come back to London was, you know, you were have you're having a baby and you wanted the, the, the job security, but which is, you know, is exactly what a corporate job would give you. But the being a brand ambassador is like being on an airplane every two minutes, flying everywhere. Did you also have to do that part of it as well? Yeah. So um, it wasn't there were global roles, but it was a UK based role. So oh. it, it was there was a lot of travel, but um, 80 percent of it was in London. Um, so no matter what happened, I could make it home to, to my wife and son every night. Um, there were definitely ambitions of, you know, the global ambassador. Wow. What, what a job, but definitely not for a family man. I, I, I don't know how anyone could do it. Really, really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to maintain a, a decent family unit and hats off to a lot of guys and girls who, who have done it. And, but it's definitely way too much for me I think now you have obviously you're dealing with people all the time so that part of being a bartender is taken care of do you miss or do you get to use your hands and make drinks and cocktails and still entertain people that way yeah I massively miss it and um (laughs) yeah (laughs) when I started at the Asia you know I was going through an adjustment phase and I said you know what despite kind of doing this um three roles merge into one I'm going to keep bartending. And um, at the time, Ali Burgess and, and Jesus, um, who were running Happiness Forget at the time, said, listen, you know, we, we, it's always good to have casual help. And so I was doing one shift a week there um, just because I was so stubborn to, <laughs> to let it go, um, despite my growing responsibilities with my family and the pressures of a new job I thought no I have to do this it's going to keep me sane and I was justifying it as my social time uh, which was wonderful you know the fact that I was being I was able to say 
I've worked in a top 50 bar, um, a top 10 bar, you know, um, was amazing. And I used to look up to Happiness Forgets when I was a young man. Um, so it was really cool to, to work there. But yeah, it was, um, I was dreaming. And I think I lasted about um, seven months of one shift a week and the pressures of my, my, my real job got, got, um, got upon me. And so um, that, that didn't last. But, you know, I still get to do a lot of fun stuff in um, with this job. You know, there's a lot of strategy. And so there's a lot of R&D and coming up with ser- serve strategies and uh, food pairing for events and whatnot. And so I guess that's part of the Tanqueray role, um, doing loads of fun um, events. And that's really down to me um, and the brand team, you know, uh, what that looks like. But actually, you know, that is the one scary thing about kind of moving away from Tanqueray is the, um, you know, not being able to do that as much. But I've, you know, since 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 this um, lockdown period, I've been doing way more drinks at home on my Instagram and that's been really fun. So, I, you know, I think that's something I can maintain and that my Instagram could be my creative outlet, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... I- Usually I, I ask, like, so what do you see for the future? Obviously, it's a weird time. So that kind of question, you know, there, there's no way because we have no idea what's going to happen, which is mm. a little exciting. So uh, because yeah. then I'll have to come back and interview you in a year and who knows? Who knows? Yeah, I think I think the future is really exciting. And despite all the doom and gloom and the massive, you know, loss of life we've seen globally, uh, uh, there's always a silver lining and you know that there's a lot of people talking about the environment which i i'm a, I'm a massive eco freak and i'd love to see you know hopefully you know a green real rebuilding process but the one thing for me is that bartenders are all entrepreneurs they have this extroverted um personality and in a massive period of recession there's always huge opportunities that come out of it people adapting the ways of working um seeing gaps in the market and coming up with new business models and so i'm i'm really excited by by what's happening with the industry at the moment i think suddenly everyone's doing off license and off trade and everything's going online and suddenly for the first time as a business model bars have now got multiple revenue streams other than just people through the door which i think is going to be really really great for the business for the whole industry and i think even though it's it's awful and it's tragic and, and and hopefully as many venues stay open as possible, the ones that do survive will be stronger for it. You know, it's kind of like a metamorphosis of the industry. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. Well, I can't wait to see you in our Roaring Twenties because I think that's what it's going to be, a complete, you know, 100 years ago after the Spanish flu, Roaring Twenties, we're going to have ours too. That's a really, really lovely analogy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I, we can actually, I know, I think so. I think everyone will be like, let's go out. So um, we shall see each other at the bar in real life next time. Sounds good? I know. I can't wait. I can't wait too. It was so great to hang out with Jack. We are fixing a date to drink as soon as we get out of lockdown. Before he departed, I asked him where he could be right now, if anywhere in the world. And also a few tips for the home bartender. So if you had the chance to drink anywhere right now, where would you drink and what would you drink? Um, there is a wonderful little bar in uh, Meganisi, which is an island off of Lefkada, um, called Boom Boom Cocktail Lounge. 
Um, and it's so cool. It's so cool. It's just all about music and blues and fun drinking. And it, it was a spot that I, I just had no idea I was going to stumble upon. So my dad and my sister have got, oh, my sister lives over there permanently. We went out on on, on the little boat and we said, no, let's stop here for ice cream. Uh, and I walked in there and um, <laughs> eating my ice cream. And I saw some cocktail shakers and swizzle sticks. And I haven't seen a swizzle stick in like a random Greek tavern forever. And I, and I said to the lady, oh, what's this place? She said, oh, it's, it's boom, boom. My... Uh, my, my my nephew he does he does the cocktails here in the evening and i hear they're really good i don't drink cocktail i don't i don't drink i said okay dad can we come back here later so we, we came back and um oh my god it was so cool so they do like the most fun tiki drinks um that are all really um his, like historically accurate from a recipe point of view and really professionally executed and they've just got um these lovely lounge seating right on the harbour front. So you just kind of lean over your chair and it's straight down into the water and it floats all around you. Um, so, yeah, amazing, amazing blues music, tiki drinks. I'll probably have one of their Mai Tais. Um, and, you know, the Greek a Greek evening in, in the harbour of Meganesi. Hopefully when this, in, in, in about three weeks when this is live, we can go there. Yeah. <laughs> we can be a lab out and go to Greece. All right. I'm planning on it. Now, if you could give any tip to the home bartender, what would be your, you know, top tip? Mm. So I'm torn between two, but we'll go with, we'll go with the, the one I guess would be the top you, tip. Okay. You, would... can, you can give me two. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so the first one would be trust your palate. And it sounds really silly. Um but since I've been doing all of these Instagram um, live cocktail classes and whatnot, um, people, you know, home amateur mixologists love recipes. And I'm always really kind of flippant. And I'm like, oh, you know, this is the recipe. But, you know, if, if you want it a bit sweeter, just put a bit more sugar syrup in it. And so well, which one is it, you know? And so follow the recipe by all means, but trust your palate, um, taste your drink. Um, and and Feel free to, to change it, you know, tweak the acidity, tweak the balance. Um, there is no right specific recipe. It's all down to your personal preference. And, you know, I've learned that the hard way. You know, I make a lot of drinks for my palate and my mother-in-law, who keeps coming over to drink them, really doesn't like them um, because she's got a sweet tooth. And you'd do it in the bar, wouldn't you? The bartender asks you what you want, asks your preference, and a good bartender will always, without you knowing it, tweak it to your taste um and so you should do the same and what's your second one that's the first one yeah so the second one is um is ice you know ice is the most underrated ingredient in cocktails um and uh the cheapest thing for you to produce if you want to make good cocktails and you're worrying about what to buy i know on your blog you've got some amazing links to some really cool um, places to get all the right equipment and some really good products. But the one thing that's not going to cost them anything is to just just care about the ice they're putting into their drinks. And so um, general rule of thumbs are um, more ice, the better. Fit in as much ice into that drink as possible. Um, don't buy party ice because it's um, quite small cubes and it melts really quickly. Um, 
make sure you haven't got any stinky takeaways in your freezer or leftovers because um, it will quickly smut, um, scent the ice. Ice is really porous, so kind of have like fresh ice, don't have it sitting in there. But um, I guess the best advice would be if you just want to do something really simple you haven't got to think about, buy um, deep, thick ice cube trays um, and just have like, you know, big, big blocks because it's going to be the, the kind of highest quality. And then use filtered water in your ice instead of tap water if you live in London especially. If you live in Scotland, you know, Scottish tap water is pretty pretty lovely. But, um, yeah, you just want to make sure you've got pure water because it's going to make up a third of your drink ultimately. So it's very important. Fabulous. Thank you. My pleasure. All this talk about ice and we're making an ice-free cocktail. Now it's time to mix salty and sour in just the right way with our cocktail of the week. Olives and limes are not an obvious combination, but that's because you've never had our cocktail of the week, Jack's Nocerola Gimlet. Take two Nocerola olives, those are the large green Sicilian ones you can find in most supermarkets, and throw them into a shaker. Now muddle them. Then add 50 mils of Tanqueray Rangpur, 25 mils of fresh lime, and 25 mils of simple syrup. Add ice and shake hard to pulverize the olives. Then fine strain into a Nick and Nora glass. Garnish it with a Nocerola olive. Let me know what you thought of the olive-lime combo. Do you love it or hate it? Also, if you are confused by the UK use of milliliters and want to know how many ounces to use, you can find a downloadable cocktail measurement converter on my website, alushlifemanual.com, where you'll find this recipe, more gimlet recipes, plus all the cocktails of the week, as well as links to all the ingredients. Okay, what was my favorite thing to make this week? Imbam Bialdi. It's this delicious mess of eggplant, onions, garlic, tomatoes, and all in olive oil. After this, I know you'll be Googling the recipe. And yes, I'm still on the diet. If you live for Lush Life, make sure you're giving back to the bars you love by donating or taking part in cocktail delivery where you live. Theme music for Lush Life is by Steven Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leads me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly and wash your hands and stay safe. Every July, I spend at least a week in Greece. But this time, with the dreaded C word in the air, I don't think we'll make it. So instead, I'm spending the next two weeks talking Greece and Greek spirits with two of the best in the business. First up is Johnny Lovanos of Usia Restaurant in New York, and then Vasilis Kiritsis of The Clumsies in Athens. Until that time, bottoms up.